Sponsor Collide is an endpoint security solution that helps your end users solve their security problems themselves. They get smarter about security and you get more compliant computing. Find out more at collide.com slash day two cloud. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash day two cloud. Welcome to day two cloud. Today we're talking about testing. And I know you're thinking like testing, that's for devs, right? But no, you are involved too if you are an operator out there because you have to set up the testing environment. Maybe that's really difficult. Maybe that takes a lot of work. We talked to someone today who is trying to set up a way to make it a little less work for you. Put it back on the developers, right, Ethan? Yeah, put it back on the developers that are delivering uh, microservices, especially in that, which is a big part of the context today. The complexity around testing microservices I, I've done testing with typically monolith environments where that's hard enough. Then you add the dependency tree introduced by microservices, and it's a whole other ball game, which is really the focus of why it's so complex and how to fix that problem. Yeah, and so we are going to go into detail describing the problem, sort of setting it up, and then inspect the solution that our guest Arjun Iyer, he's the the founder and CEO of Signadot, a solution he's put together to help you deal with the end to end and integration testing and microservices. That might be in your environment today. So enjoy this conversation with Arjun Iyer. Well, Arjun, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. We're excited to have you here. Before we dive into the topic, why don't you tell the folks a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on the show. And I'm Arjun Iyer. I am the CEO and co-founder of Signadot, which is a Y Combinator-funded startup. And uh, we are actually helping developers that are building cloud native applications to get these on-demand ephemeral environments uh, on Kubernetes. So that's kind of the focus of the company and uh, super excited to be here on the show today. Awesome. Now, before you were at Signadot, you were at another company that I think most of our listeners have heard of, and that was AppDynamics. Uh, What did you do at AppDynamics and how did that inform what you decided to do with Signadot? Yeah, I was uh, a senior engineering director at uh, AppDynamics. So I led the um, business IQ product and the engineering team there. So they pretty much built that from scratch. Uh, When I joined AppDynamics, this was back in 2014. uh, There were three people in the team. And by the time I left, there were more than 60 people in the team. So I had a massive uh, growth uh, there. And we built everything cloud native. So that was one of the early products within AppDynamics that was all built in the cloud. Uh, so we got exposure to you know AWS and how to really architect the application in a microservices fashion very, very early on our journey. So um, yeah, so that's kind of the, the place where as the team scaled and we started to break down the solution into different services that had dependencies on uh, databases and systems like Elasticsearch and Kafka and all these uh, uh, fun stuff that you play with that high volumes of data. Um, That's when we started to really, uh, you know, start to hit some roadblocks in terms of how how productive can my engineering team be like in in this environment, right? So uh, especially the testing became a big challenge, even though we were able to develop independently these pieces, Testing required everything to be put together. And that's where the challenge came, came about is um, the whole notion of microservices is you build everything and release everything independently, right? So, uh, but testing 
is challenging to do unless you have the old system put together, right? Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to get in this kind of a highly dynamic microservices environment. It's rather difficult to get that sort of high test signal um, in isolation, right? That was the key uh, bottleneck that we ran into. Um, and that's uh, meaning meaning you build a microservice and it's deployed on its own. So you're isolated in that sense or? Correct. By just running your own component, it's it's rather hard to test uh, whether your yeah. component fits within the um, the graph of all the other services that it depends on and depend on your service that you're building as well. Right. So there's both sides of the dependencies that uh, play into a factor here. So, so how do you test for that today, typically? Yeah, realizing it's not, <laughs> this is a problem we're trying to address, but what, what, it, what yeah. is that scenario when you've deployed your new microservice and want to test it? Yeah, right now we see um, three main uh, ways uh, companies do it. And we did a variation of this as well back at AppDynamics as well. Uh, one is you tend to uh, write these integration tests that run uh, in a CI pipeline, right? And these are usually, uh, you just spin up your service and maybe you mock most of the rest of the dependencies because uh, you don't want to just test you know, your service coming up and, and it running. Maybe you can spin up a database as well. Um, there's this product called Test Containers, which we used to use at AppDynamics, which used to be able to bring up like a database very quickly. And that helps you test just, you know, your service with the database, right? So that's, that was one thing that was uh, pretty popular back then. So not a replication of the full production environment, but, but just exactly. like bare minimum of environment minimum. to verify that the interactions you would expect to and from the microservice are working as expected. Exactly. Right. Okay. That was one way that we saw a lot of companies do it. We did that as well. The other thing we see is a lot of people depend on this sort of pre-production environment, which is typically called staging. And so this happens post-merge, right? So not not pre-merge like the CI use case that I talked earlier. So once you change, you check in and merge your code, that gets you know deployed to a staging environment, and you use that staging environment as your basic testing uh, you know uh, environment. So that happens quite often and we see most of the companies doing that right now right so they use the staging environment because it has all the other services running it has third party dependencies uh, integrated into that environment it has production like data that closely resembles or mimics production data as well in that environment so um yeah so we see that uh, quite often nowadays and that's what i've been worked with typically as well or had to build the infrastructure to support that it feels it's as close to production as you can get. There's probably some cost cutting measures involved and, you know, and so on. But the intent is to truly have an environment that that you can feel pretty confident that your testing is uh, giving you some answers that you you care about. Not like, well, it passed in the lab. You know, it's we're, we're way beyond that in this uh, staging setup. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, basically, the, the main uh, attempt or the main uh, interest in staging is because it mimics production as closely as possible. Right. So you get that high fidelity feedback uh, in that environment. However, the main problem with that staging environment uh, is that it's shared, right? It's shared between uh, teams, it is shared between developers uh, within an existing team as well, so and across teams, right? So it becomes a big uh, bottleneck in terms of people r- bumping into each other, right? So, like, you know, I'll be I'll be doing my testing or my team will be doing the testing, and then uh, somebody else, uh, some other team's changes will land in the staging environment, and it'll break us. And 
um, you know, it's always like, hey, why is staging down again? Right. So, um, you know, that, I'm sure uh, you must have heard this quite often. And we have had a fair share of uh, those um, uh, conversations which don't go too well. <laughs> well, yeah, because if people don't build it as close to, well, th- there's so many things we could go into, Arjun. But, uh, but yes, I would say I spent as much time supporting QA and testing environments as I did, quote unquote, production environments for yeah. exactly the reasons you cite. Yeah, right, right. Sometimes more because the staging tends to be more of a mess. Uh, like yeah. you said, uh, you've got, uh, especially for microservices, when you're scaling out to six or 10 or, a, you know, 20 teams that are all working on their own microservice, I want to push an update and test it on stage. I either have to get in line behind the other 15 people that want to test a change that day. Yeah. Or I try to test it at the same time and I get back bad results because I'm testing against somebody else's newer version of the code, which may have bugs or, or not work properly either. And is it a yeah. problem with my code or is it a problem? With <laughs> code? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And we see people uh, doing some interesting uh, solutions here. So um, we talked to a few people who actually lock staging, right? So, um, so every developer can get a lock on staging. So, you know, for them to test their code uh, in staging, but nobody else can deploy on staging when the lock is on. Right. Um, so we've seen, approaches like this, but obviously, as you can imagine, this doesn't scale beyond uh, a certain number of developers in the company, right? So if you got, if you start locking staging, then everybody's waiting on a queue, right? And it's not, it's not a good experience. So, um, but we do see these kind of like, you know, organic solutions uh, trying uh, being attempted at various companies as well. Yeah. And then you brought up a good point in terms of, um, you know, is my testing valid, right? Because um, there's always changes happening in different microservices. And I al- always want to ensure that the the change that I'm testing is always against the latest versions of all the other dependencies that I test against, right? So, so that becomes also an important issue because um, if you, you know, the, the other sort of approach here is you could think about, okay, let me actually clone my staging environment, right? Let me actually create let's say a staging environment per team, for example, right? Mm-hmm. That could be another solution that we've seen some, some companies adopt, but at a lower scale. Uh, but again, it gets very, very expensive to clone your staging environment, right? Yeah. So, and it gets expensive pretty quickly. So, um, and the other uh, issue that that suffers from is the staleness issue, right? Because now you got to keep like 10 of these environments up to date and where continuously trunk is being updated for every microservice. Right. That is a pretty daunting uh, problem mm-hmm. because you got to, you, you now shifted the problem from maintaining one staging environment to uh, end staging environments. Right. And that's where solutions like uh, continuous deployment through Argo or something comes in the, in, into play where each of those environments is tracking the trunk for the 20 different microservices. And when a, an update is pushed or merged into the main, then that gets automatically deployed to those staging environments or at least, you know, maybe once a night or something like that, but still that's, that's a lot to manage. And like you said, it's super expensive. <laughs> yeah. I've been yeah. in a few environments where they do have multiple QA environments and uh, they were not, that was not cheap. Uh, especially if you're running in the cloud, <laughs> at least you can scale out, but still you're, you're going to pay a, a pretty penny for that. Sponsor collide is an endpoint security solution that helps your end users solve their security problems themselves. They get smarter about security and you get more compliant computing. Find out more at collide.com slash day two cloud. 
That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash day to cloud. Getting back to the uh, the first thing that you mentioned, which was as part of the continuous integration pipeline. Mm-hmm. So in that case, you're not building out these separate environments necessarily. So you're not paying that cost. But I think you run into the same problem that you sort of mentioned with always keeping the other services current with the trunk. So your your mocks, the, the, the dependencies that you're mocking up, those also have to be updated to track whatever is on the main trunk as well. Exactly. I think that becomes a big challenge there because the dependencies grow over time, right? Imagine if you just had like one dependency or two dependencies, maybe you can maintain that. But imagine if you have like three or four dependencies and and that's continuously evolving as well, right? So now just maintaining the mocks is becoming a big uh, like a full-time job for you know for for the development team, so it becomes very challenging to scale that uh, uh, paradigm as well, where you are depending on these mock things. And the other thing is, it doesn't give you a high fidelity signal, right? It's it's very it's a very fake uh, imitation of production. So you're always going to run into you know um, issues that you cannot catch in these environments. Yeah, right. we passed a bunch of tests that kind of don't matter. Yeah. Now, Arjun, you said there were three models that people were following, I think. We talked, so we were just about CI pipeline with the mock dependencies. We were talking about the staging environment that's much more robust. And yeah. what's the third one? Actually, uh, staging is, I was, uh, you know, thinking about, I was proposed, I mean, I was suggesting staging is itself split into two. One is where you lock it and you have independent testing happening ah, in staging. Okay. Uh, and the third one was where testing is, I mean, the staging itself is shared. Got you. That's true. This sounds like a lot of work, man. Can can we push this off on the developers, or does ops needs to be involved with all of this testing? <laughs> what I really like to just say is, here's a cluster. Now it's your problem to figure out the testing. I gave you the cluster. Yeah, yeah. Well, now I mean, the, the other question here that we haven't really asked is, this is a reason why some people don't need microservices because they're so trendy. You know, maybe, yeah. maybe <laughs> with all the complications that we're yeah. introducing, we can actually get along with a monolith. Yeah, no, there's there's absolutely a right time and place for a, a microservices based architecture. I think it needs to be thought through, and it's it's not a you know it's not a silver bullet by any means, right? So it does come with its own added complexity, but uh, it does allow you to scale, right? At at certain yes. uh, organizational scale and size, it does start to make a lot of sense, and uh, that's where you see the real uh, power of microservices and. Um, and yeah, you are absolutely right. Uh, sort of like you know, uh, there's an evolution for it, and um, and in terms of the responsibilities that you talked about, Ned, um, uh, yeah, we definitely see that sort of a very um, a good collaboration between the DevOps and the developer teams uh, here. Where uh, in general, the trend that we see is DevOps the people are. Uh, uh, sort of more responsible in setting up these environments and uh, the developers are more in in charge of actually writing the tests and leveraging that environment, right? So I think that works in a very nice collaborative way where uh, the DevOps team can actually set up these environments on demand, on the fly, and also give that capability to the developers to do that, right? So they can actually do ad hoc testing uh, they can actually do automated testing as well in a CI context. They can do ad hoc testing on when, on an as per need basis. So there's a lot of interesting um, paradigms that evolve from having that core capability of actually spinning up uh, environment, test environments. Well, the test, you mentioned the devs writing the test, and I can see that being true for the app level sorts of testing that needs to be done, microservice to microservice. Only the devs are going to know 
the uh, the surface interactions and what needs to be discussed there. But then there's also infrastructure testing in theory that would need to be done for the microservices as well that maybe an ops person would write. Is that possibly true? Definitely. I think that could be true as well, because, uh, you know, these are, you know, environments that uh, typically run in sort of a Kubernetes or equivalent context. Um, so I think that is a, a way for uh, operations teams also to test the infrastructure, but uh, that's a little bit of a different uh, focus uh, than sort of like how I've been thinking about the problem and the uh, the solution here. But uh, definitely it can cater to both uh, personas here, but our focus right now is to really help uh, the developers write these application level tests. Uh, these could be uh, API tests. These could be end-to-end -end tests. These could be uh, integration, smoke, this huge uh, uh, variety of tests that you can layer on top of a base platform like what we're building. Mm. Right. So, so I think, Ethan, you might be thinking of like situations where you'd be interacting with a service mesh. And who writes the tests for the service mesh is it the developers writing the tests when they want to push another configuration into the service mesh? Uh, or is it the ops folks who manage the service mesh who should be writing those tests? And uh, maybe both? <laughs> I, well, in situations where an app is dependent on the infrastructure being deployed in a particular way for that app to work the way it needs to work. And if we've changed the code, do we also need to validate that the platform it's running on is still valid? And you know, the, the resiliency testing and, you know, and these kind of things, where do you draw those lines? But but anyway, we're not solving that problem today, uh, Arjun. So, yeah. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> right. Ideally, so the staging environment that you're working with is interacting with you know, production-like level data to get you the reliable results you're looking for. In terms of how that environment is maintained, you probably want to be working with production-like data. So do you recommend sanitizing the production data and importing it into Staging, or is there some other process you've seen out there that works better? Um, yeah, so those the two two main primary ways we've seen is yeah, like what you said, sort of taking a snapshot from production, cleaning that data so that you don't have sensitive information in there, and just you know having that loaded into the staging environment. That seems to be fairly common, um, but you need to be really careful about sort of like you know cleaning the data uh, so that you don't. Uh, um, violate any sort of GDPR or privacy concerns there. Um, so that takes a little bit of effort, but yeah, that's something that can be done in a repeatable manner, like, you know, once a week or once a month or, you know, depending upon the cadence that makes sense for you. Um, the other thing we have seen is actually loading synthetic data in the staging environment, right? Mm -hmm. So this is something that, uh, you know, many companies do who don't want you, uh, basically who don't want anything to do with production data coming into staging, right? They want to keep that, uh, completely isolated from each other, um, just mainly for security and privacy reasons. Right. And um, so there they actually built these frameworks where it makes it very easy for developers to actually feed data into the into the database using the domain model that they have in their company, right? So if it's like a e-commerce company and you have like customers, products, shopping carts and whatnot and uh, merchants and these entities, um, they have these sort of like uh, domain-specific uh, UI or uh, test uh, sort of like loads, uh, uh, test data scripts, if you will, that make it very easy for developers to feed, uh, generate that kind of data into the system. So we have seen both models work, uh, you know, depending upon, yeah, the, the, the requirements and the sensitivity of data there. 
Still nothing, no, nothing quite mirrors production like production, though, because yeah. customers will do weird things. They'll put the wrong information in the wrong fields and and just mess with your code in, in new and, and interest and fun ways that you can't predict with one of these uh, tools that just generate synthetic data. Yeah. Um, I'd like to dig into the SignaDot solution a little bit because ostensibly you you started SignaDot to solve the problems that we've been discussing so far. So how are you addressing this this testing challenge? Like what's included in the high-level solution of SignaDot? Yeah. Um, so essentially we look at this problem as in, in two dimensions. Like, and we talked about both of them. One is fidelity. Like, is my test environment giving me high fidelity feedback? Right. Is it as close to production as possible? Um, the second one is, is it scalable? Like, you know, can I actually democratize or decentralize testing for an engineering organization that has already adopted microservices where every team or every developer wants to move independently, right? So that's the scale part of it, right? Because, and we talked about the challenges in scaling by cloning a staging environment, right? That's not very <laughs> cost-effective, even though that is one potential approach to scaling, right? Um, so so at a high level, so SignaDot essentially allows you to use an existing uh, pre-production environment. So you have an existing Kubernetes cluster that is functioning as a staging environment uh, uh, currently. So you install SignaDot in that uh, environment or that cluster uh, to be more specific. And now you can actually create these on-demand uh, ephemeral environments called sandbox environments, which we are calling uh, internally. Um, and this allows you to get the high fidelity sort of like uh, dimension or the high fidelity capability or quality that you would expect from that staging environment and scale this to like thousands and thousands of environments without really having to pay the cost of duplicating the entire environment repeatedly, right? So, so it addresses sort of, you're trying to get the best of both worlds here, right? High fidelity at low cost. So is it running on my production cluster then? Or are you saying I've got a staging cluster that I've dedicated to this and I'm just using the single staging cluster to do as much testing as I can? Yes, it's the it's the latter. It's okay, basically okay. like people most most of our customers use an existing pre-production staging environment to install SignaDot, and that's where you create these uh, ephemeral sandbox environments uh, uh, on top of. Okay, so you say yeah. I'm loading SignaDot onto my Kate's cluster. Does that take a big chunk of resources, or is it pretty pretty light lift? It's pretty lightweight uh, just because of the, so it's what installation is literally like one Helm command, right? Yeah. Because uh, it's just an, it's a Kubernetes operator that's installed on that cluster. So it's very quick to install. And then every sandbox environment you spin up, um, the key insight here is that every change that you want to test only touches a few microservices at a given time. Like, you know, because that's kind of how, you know, my, that's the reason the whole code base is split up into several services. You don't want to, you want to make small changes more often, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, because of that uh, uh, sort of approach of developing and pushing lots of small changes to production, every sandbox environment only needs to duplicate the services that have changed, right? So we only spin up, for example, let's say you have 50 microservices that compose your application, and I'm touching like two of those microservices for my uh, code change, I then duplicate or rather I clone only those two services in my environment and have that as part of the sandbox environment. But I share the for remaining 48 
services that I depend on uh, that already exist in that, already are running in that cluster. Uh, okay, so sandboxes can interact outside of itself to do the testing that's needed? Um, so think of sandbox as a, a, um, a, a, a unit that is actually covering the services under test and the baseline set of services that are already running in that environment. So that's why it's a full complete environment because it's a union of those two, right? So basically we wire the um, services under test with the rest of the services that are running in that environment. And we make it safe to have multiple versions of a service running in the same cluster. That's kind of the key thing. Okay, I think I'm kind of getting the picture. So in this case, if I had two different sandboxes, right? One for microservice, a and B and the other one for microservice C and D. So A and B would have the newer versions of the A and B microservice running inside the sandbox, interacting with, like you said, the other 48 microservices that haven't been updated. So they're just running off of the, the main trunk. And then my other sandbox has C and D running this new version and talking to the other 48, including the older versions of A and B. You got it. Okay, so yeah. the, the yeah. C&D, if they interact with A with A and B, they're not talking to the other sandbox. They're talking no. to that yeah. shared collection of microservices that are exactly. at the different version. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Think of the, the trunk version of all the services as the baseline. Like that's what we call as the baseline uh, environment. And then every sandbox and uh, uh, sandbox environment contains the baseline environment plus anything that you're changing. Right. So, so you can basically replace uh, any set of services that you have touched in the sandbox environment. But each sandbox does not contain a unique copy. That, that's the whole thing we're getting to here. Yes. Just the, it just has the, the microservices that we're testing. Yeah. Okay. Correct. So we don't, not every sandbox doesn't have 50 microservices. Uh, is, exactly. Is the point. And that's why, that's the whole reason it scales very well, because yeah. Uh, you know, that would be very cost prohibitive. That's kind of equivalent to cloning the, you know, staging environment. Okay. So the, in terms of the type of testing you'd be using this solution for, would this be primarily for integration and end to end? Like I would do all my other testing prior to engaging with the sandbox. So yeah, this is primarily for, uh, so we, there's an evolution here that we see our customers do. They always start with integration testing. That is the first uh, thing that they do. And typically using the service APIs themselves, right? So it could be a very easy way to hook this up in your CI pipeline for every, say, pull request or a branch for any service, right? Um, so you bring up the, the branch version of the service in a sandbox, and you're able to test it using the service API using HTTP or gRPC, uh, whatever APIs that uh, the service exposes. And you can actually run a bunch of integration tests very, very quickly using this uh, framework, right? right. Um, yeah. And so instead of using mock mock dependency yeah. and mocks in, yeah. my, in my integration testing, now I'm actually testing against live services. Live services, exactly. And I can have multiple branches in the same repository, all doing testing. At the same time. Yeah, same exactly. Time. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly the, the scalability. That's where the scalability of this model comes in, right? So I can now have a sandbox environment for every branch in every repo, right? Across my uh, engineering organization. And I can do parallel concurrent integration tests that scales really well. And, and as you said, Ned, it, this is testing against the live cluster, right? It's not, it's not a mocked up um, environment. 
Okay. Okay. That that's making more sense to me now. Now <laughs> I'm just thinking about how you control that flow, right? Because I'm going to have a microservice in my sandbox that's talking to a microservice that's in the shared area. And I need the traffic to flow properly between those two endpoints. So what are you putting in from a technical perspective to ensure traffic flows properly between those components? Yeah. So if you, if you look at sort of like there's two types of flows, right? So there's uh, let's say you're changing a microservice a, and so let's say you have a version called a prime in your sandbox, right? Um, now there's outbound uh, traffic that flows from A prime to the rest of the the baseline uh, environment, correct? So uh, that is that flows uh, just as it would flow regularly because uh, basically it has access to all the other services in that environment, right? So uh, just by the fact that we are deploying it in Kubernetes, it's able to uh, and in the same cluster, uh, it's able to make uh, have the same service references as it would have on staging, for example, right? So it's able to talk to other databases and uh, services that it depends on. Uh, so that works seamlessly out of the box. And we take care of making sure that the forking, we call this forking, uh, where we fork this A prime version of the service into a sandbox and Signadot handles all of that uh, automatically under the cover. So it actually takes the actual uh, manifest and the configuration of a service that's in the in the in the baseline and it forks that into this A prime version by copying all over the manifest and everything over and only changing the things that change. Like for example, any image would be different because you're, mm -hmm. you're testing a new version of the service, right? So we'll uh, overlay that with a new image and we can also overlay that with any other configuration changes that um, need to be applied on the A prime version. So all of that is handled by Signata. And so, um, yeah, so the outbound uh, sort of, you know, um, calls, you know, work as it would work in a staging environment. Um, the other thing is the inbound, right? So there may be inbound calls coming to A prime from other services that are in the baseline, right? So, so there, what we do is, so we have uh, the capability to route requests within that cluster uh, using uh, our own sidecars that uh, are redeploy in the cluster. And it does a very basic traffic routing or a traffic uh, 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 dynamic traffic routing capability where we actually look at headers present in the request, in the test request, and are able to route it to specific versions of services in sandboxes, depending upon the value of the header. So we have that capability as well. Gotcha. And I think, did you just, uh, I don't know if you mentioned, does the sandbox get its own uh, sort of namespace and, and DNS namespace that it can use for, say, like an external service that it needs to talk to? Uh, so it doesn't get a DNS. It, it basically gets a URL, right? So it gets a unique URL that is available for a sandbox. Um, and uh, it's available for every service in that sandbox, right? So, uh, and sandboxes do support multi-services, uh, multiple services also to be included in them. Um, so it's not the, 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 the sandboxing is not done at the namespace level, which is more of a Kubernetes based uh, uh, sandboxing uh, concept, but it's done at the logical level, right? So we take care of uh, having that sort of a boundary, which is a sandbox boundary. And we have our own uh, CRDs that actually manage the, uh, the configuration and the metadata around the sandbox. Okay, so if my baseline environment includes components that aren't in that cluster directly, I can still interface with those yes. components from the sandbox? Very much. 
I'm thinking yeah. of database servers that might yeah. not inside the yeah cloud. of course yeah we have a, yeah we have customers that use like cloud resources heavily so they'll most likely rely on the RDS instance or uh, some kind of like you know uh, a database in the cloud and those work seamlessly in a sandbox because you know all of that configuration is available uh, even to the forked version of the service in a sandbox. You also mentioned HTTP headers being used to carry yeah. metadata, I'm assuming a cookie or something that you can use to direct traffic to one place or another. Well, how do those headers get populated? Is there a, a signal.proxy somewhere in the midst here? Yeah, the URL that I mentioned uh, is actually hosted by the Signa. Uh, uh, SaaS uh, API endpoint. So uh, that works as a very uh, easy, transparent, authenticated proxy, right? So it's a proxy service that we provide out of the box that can be used to um, the endpoint of which points to specific forked versions of services in the cluster, right? So using that uh, URL, you can now easily write, you can just think of that as a URL pointing to your service API and be able to write an API test very, very quickly and be able to test that within a CI pipeline, for example. But sitting, sitting not as a sidecar, but more, uh, more as a proxy that's generic to the entirety of the cluster. Like I said, there's multiple URLs. So one for every, like there could be multiple URLs per sandbox even, uh, but all of that is hosted in our uh, SaaS control plane, right? So it's a, it, it's a global uh, proxy layer that handles all these URLs. Apart from that, the dynamic routing that I talked about is that is something that works in the cluster, right? So like, for example, if, um, you know, you get an entry point into, uh, let's say, a front-end uh, API, right? Like an Edge API that um, you want to make a request to, and that Edge API hits uh, some service in the baseline um, environment, and then the baseline environment has to route the next hop to uh, A prime in the sandbox. So that is something that is taken care of by the sidecar. Hmm. So it's a combination of the proxy that is in the SaaS level and the sidecar that is at, in the cluster, like that is in the cluster uh, that we inject into the baseline deployments. I, I asked it as an either or, and in fact, it's both. Yeah, yeah it's gotcha. both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we brought up a new component that I, I don't think you'd mentioned before, which is that there's a SaaS component to your offering. Yeah. Well, so I'm going to be deploying the operators in my clusters, but I'm going to be managing this from a central control plane. That's That's the SaaS component. That's correct. So the SaaS is a lightweight control plane that does two things. One is it basically, there's a UI a dashboard that actually allows you to see all the sandboxes in, and then have a bird's eye view of all the sandboxes running in your in, environment. Uh, and you can actually set configurations and things like that. Like for example, you can set time to live for sandboxes at an organizational level, right? So, uh, you know, configurations like that, you can uh, configure on the SaaS control plane. And it also acts as an authenticated proxy layer, like I just talked about earlier. So uh, essentially there's these two functions that the SaaS um, surface uh, provides. Okay. So if I'm an ops human and I've been asked to roll this solution out uh, into my Kubernetes cluster, you said it's a, it's a Helm command, no big deal. But do I need to do other planning, like for uh, cluster capacity, for example? There is uh, obviously, you know, as you spin up these sandbox environments, there are new pods and new uh, services being created in the in the environment. So there is a marginal increase in the number of uh, pods running and the infrastructure hardware resources needed for that. Uh, but it's yeah. So there needs to be some thought about that in terms of like how how many services are there and how many sandboxes would you typically need per month, depending upon the number of microservices you have. 
So there's a little bit of capacity planning required, but it's it's marginal, right? It's not like you're suddenly going to double your uh, capacity that's required to use sandboxes. So it can be done in a very incremental manner where you include, uh, you start to use sandboxes in certain repositories within your microservices uh, ecosystem. And then you actually include more and more repositories into the sandbox uh, system. So, uh, so the so the growth can be fairly gradual, and you can actually plan uh, way in advance uh, if you need uh, cluster hardware to support the sandbox environments. That, that does uh, get to a different question since you mentioned repositories and the integration. So, your solution does it? tied directly back to version control or is there some sort of intermediary there um and do you have any recommendations about structuring your repositories or the the best branching strategies for using signadot or or any other testing solution uh, yeah the repository structure is a little bit orthogonal concern but we do see uh, uh best practices especially when you have uh this sort of microservices paradigm where people tend to prefer uh, sort of a multi-repo uh, approach rather than a mono-repo approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's some debate on that as well. It's not so uh, cut and dry there. So there's, uh, you know, uh, some people uh, do like the advantages of a mono-repository, but especially when you have decentralized or broken up the monolith into various microservices, you do want that independence, right? You do want each service having its own CI CD pipeline and it's independent path to production. So in that case, you would want to have it in its own repository. Um, in terms of the branching strategy, the most common thing we see is trunk-based development. Uh, that seems to be the most popular and uh, you know the most simple way to do it. And it avoids a lot of the complexity that comes where you have like you know various branches for different features and uh, things like that. It gets pretty confusing if you if you do it that way, right? So. Um, yeah, trunk-based thing. You just keep, you know, everything in trunk. Obviously, you you run, you do your development work on individual feature branches, but you merge to trunk very often. Like you don't have very long-running feature branches, right? That's I would highly recommend that because we have gone through uh, a similar pain when I was uh, at AppDynamics as well, and uh, managing all these branches does get very very painful at scale. Gotcha. And in terms of tracking, uh, when an update is pushed to uh, version control, if it's merged into trunk or you want to test a feature branch, is it just a webhook that's that's on the VCS side that's just watching it and and then triggering a sandbox deployment when it happens? Yeah. So we integrate with like so basically what we have as an API uh, as a user experience surface is a CLI uh, and an API, right? So um, so essentially like uh, typically we integrate into CI pipeline. So like if you already have like a Jenkins or a GitHub Actions uh, workflow that is already set up that listens to these triggers uh, in that pipeline, you can just call Signadot. It's just a simple API. We also have a CLI that makes it very, very easy to call our API. So you can just use a Signadot API, or sorry, CLI in that pipeline as a step to create the sandbox, right? So there'll be like a simple, uh, the most simplest thing would be a three-step process, like, you know, build the image, uh, use the CLI to create a sandbox, and then use the sandbox URL to run an integration test. Okay, okay. So that would be a simple example. You could use the API if you want a more complicated example. Yeah. But that's how it's hooking into the pipeline. and The pipeline, yeah. And deploying those sandboxes. And then you can control 
the if I'm the operator here, uh, trying to make sure that my developers don't over provision or or create too many sandboxes, can I control how many sandboxes and what type of sandboxes they can create? Uh, yeah, I mean, so one, we don't have a, a limit right now currently that you can actually do, but it's very easy for us to uh, set up something like that if needed. But we do have, like I mentioned, a TTL configuration, right? So okay. you can actually have a time to live configuration that you set up for the sandboxes. So basically you, you avoid these orphaned sandboxes, right? That kind of like linger in the cluster even beyond uh, the test um, uh, execution, right? Um, but typically what we've seen is that is useful for the ad hoc use case, but for the automatic, uh, for the auto, um, uh, for the uh, automation use case where you're actually creating this and running tests uh, in an automated fashion, the last step would typically be tear down the sandbox, mm -hmm. right? Because you would, you know, you typically like build the image, create a sandbox, run the test, and then tear it down, right? That will be part of the uh, pipeline uh, that runs. So that gets automatically reclaimed, but uh, but many developers use it on an ad hoc basis as well. Like if I want to test something without, uh, you know, being in automation, but I quickly have something in my branch and I'm not yet ready to uh, push it into a, a pull request or something like that, in which case, you could run the CLI from your local desktop and create a, a sandbox uh, and be able to do some manual testing, right? In those cases, the TTL comes in handy because uh, you know people always forget to uh, shut it down. Yes, they do. Yeah, and even in in a pipeline situation, sometimes something can happen to the pipeline, and then you just yeah yeah sandbox because that teardown action didn't happen. Didn't happen. Yeah, right. I think ideally, I would want to snapshot it if if tests failed to see what what failed, but then still tear it down so I'm not taking up that capacity anymore. Yeah. Right. Uh, last question I have in terms of architecture is that. Does this solution assume that I have a service mesh already deployed in my Kubernetes cluster to work, or or, or can this solution work without a service mesh being present? Yeah, it does not rely. Uh, it does not require a service mesh, and that's the reason we use our own sidecars that are auto injected uh, into the baseline deployments uh, to do the traffic shape, uh, traffic routing, right? Um, so it's a very lightweight sidecar. It does nothing. It just sits there and does uh, traffic routing, right? So, uh, but if you happen to have a service mesh, then we don't need the sidecar. So then we uh, integrate with the service mesh that you have. Right now we have support for Istio. Um, Linkerd support is on the way. Um, so if you have a service mesh like Istio, we just leverage the virtual services uh, uh, concept that Istio provides. Uh, to do the same kind of routing, but using Istio as the as a control plane there. Okay, makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. I would guess most folks who are running at scale probably have a service mesh, but not always, not necessarily. Yeah. We've discussed on previous podcasts how you may not actually need a service mesh. <laughs> yeah. Nodding his head. Yeah. yeah, it's a, it's a pretty large uh, undertaking. So I think uh, yeah. So we do see uh, you know uh, yeah the the adoption has been a little bit slower and uh, in, in in the service mesh. Uh, land, but uh, yeah, I do. I think we are like fairly agnostic to that. Cool. Well, if someone wants to learn more or take this for a test drive, where, where's the best place for them to go and look? Um, yeah, the best we we have a, a a free version up online. So you go to www.signa.com and uh, you can sign up for a free version. Or we also have the free trial of the team plan. So that is something that you can take away, uh, take advantage of. It's free for thirty days to try. And uh, would love, you know, for anybody to try it out. Um, and if there's any 
questions, you know, feel free to reach out at uh, info at signa.com. Uh, that would be a email address that we can be a pretty um, very um, particular about responding very quickly. So, you know, feel free to uh, jump and uh, ask us any questions that you have. We do have a community Slack channel as well, as well as a community GitHub project. So um, that's another avenue for you to uh, join and ask us any questions that you may have as well. All right, excellent. Well, Arjun Iyer, CEO of Signadot, thank you so much for joining us today on Day 2 Cloud. And hey, virtual high fives to you, dear listener, for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, you know we want to hear about those. And you can hit either of us up on Twitter at Day 2 Cloud Show. If you're not a Twitter person or you like more long form typing, you have a lot to say, uh, go to day2cloud.io. We have a form up there that you can fill out and express yourself however you'd like. Uh, if you like engineering-oriented shows like this one, why don't you visit packetpushers.net slash subscribe. All of our podcasts, newsletters, which are excellent, by the way, and websites are there. It's all nerdy content designed for your professional career development. Until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.